0: From 1st Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, and Paul is talking to the congregation at Thessalonica. and He says to them, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 1 Thessalonians chapter five. We will be taking our study from there this morning. We hope that you have brought your Bibles and we prepared to study from the Word of God this morning. We're certainly grateful for the privilege to be able to worship God as we have this morning. We're thankful for the presence of many of you that are here, and we have those who are visiting with us. We're especially grateful that you are here, that you've chosen to come here. You made a choice. We recognize that. We appreciate very much that you have. Uh, shown interest in spiritual things and wanting to worship God and assemble with people who have faith in Christ Jesus. And we're especially glad that you are here. We're thankful for our members, of course, who are here as well. We're always glad to be able to be together. It's always a time of encouragement and where we are able to lift each other up and and spend time in worship to the God of heaven and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It was announced a few weeks ago that our annual theme is going to be taken from these verses that we just heard in our reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. Should be a constant Part of the life of a child of God. It should be seen that way, I think especially as you see the words that are associated with that, rejoice not just sometimes, all the time, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing in everything, give thanks, and what's interesting, if you look in At these words, these are all three given as commands, not just mere suggestions. These are imperative statements that we must rejoice always, whether we feel like it or not. We need to pray always or without ceasing whether we feel like it or not. We have to give thanks in everything, whether we want to or not. Whether we feel like we have something to be thankful for or not. All of these things are commands that God and Christ Jesus are expecting us to keep that are required in our walk with the Lord. And this is obviously found at the conclusion of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians in which he has offered several encouraging remarks to the church and the brethren there trying to help them focus their work and those who need some attention. If you go back just a few verses earlier in verse 11, he says, Therefore encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also are doing. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And what Paul is really trying to think do as he is closing out this letter, he's trying to just issue some good statements, some good wisdom of how you can build your relationships and help each other in our service and our work for the Lord. And then he follows those statements of encouragement and, that, and giving us a sense of purpose with, here are three things that you need to do for yourself. if you want to have the kind of life that you're supposed to have if you want to have the proper perspective on life you need to adopt these three things in your life you need to rejoice you need to pray you need to give thanks And he closes in verse 18 with that statement, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is what God wants you to do. This is the kind of life that God wants you to lead. I think many times if you think when you see that statement, God's will, we we usually associate that with usually moral kind of living. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I think we can illustrate this pretty, pretty clearly. In 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, and in verse 3, where Paul is beginning to issue some very strong uh, warnings against behavior uh, of sexual immorality and those kinds of things associated with that, he says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3, For this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. I think many times we, as Christians, we can kind of fall into this trap or this line of thinking where we say, okay, here's what I'm not doing. I'm not doing, I'm not participating in sin. I'm not living a life of sexual immorality. I'm not cursing. I'm not, uh, you know, cheating others. I'm not stealing. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. And so we say, hey, look at what I'm doing. I must be doing God's will. I'm doing right. I'm living the way that God wants me to live. And that's part of how God wants you to live, no doubt. But there's another element to our life that God wants for you. He wants you to enrich your life. And that enrichment is going to come through prayer, through rejoicing, through giving of thanks. That's the kind of life that God wants you to live. There is more to doing God's will than just refraining from certain immoral behaviors. Just not doing the bad stuff is not good enough. The Christian life requires more than that. It requires a life of commitment. And so we want to explore these three areas and facets this morning and throughout this year, periodically, where we're going to be looking at these things and trying to understand how we can adopt these things for our life to enrich and to better and improve our walk with the Lord. And the first thing that we need to understand is he says that we are to rejoice always. You think about that statement The idea of rejoice always, that is not an uncommon refrain, especially in Paul's letters in the book of Romans in the 14th chapter where Paul is writing about learning to deal with one another in their differences and their opinions that they might have. In Romans chapter 14 and in verse 17, Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy. In the Holy Spirit, in chapter 15 in in Romans, in Romans chapter 15 and in verse 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And so you can detect very quickly that the idea of rejoicing or having joy in our life is something that God expects of a Christian. In the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5, In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, when Paul is giving us the attributes of the fruit of the Spirit, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He includes there joy. The word rejoice, it means to be in a state of happiness and well-being. And this becomes a major theme in the book of Philippians, in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 18, in the opening chapter, when Paul is talking about his imprisonment and how he is there suffering because he has been preaching the gospel, and yet others are able to go about freely preaching the gospel and it ends up causing more harm for Paul because of that. And notice what Paul's attitude is in all this. He says in Philippians 1, verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul says, I'm going to continue rejoicing just by the simple fact that Christ is proclaimed. In chapter 4, there's other passages that we could look at in Philippians, but just for the sake of time, in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord, always, again, I will say, rejoice. And what ends up being, I think, somewhat of a, a misguided way of thinking about rejoicing, as Paul is talking about it, and he is certainly going through a lot of things there in Philippians and what he is dealing with, all the different circumstances that he is uh, being dealt. When you think about ideas and modern notions of rejoicing and having joy, being happy, those are scriptural ideas. Those are the things that God wants for you in your life. But I think what we oftentimes do, especially in modern times, we begin thinking about what makes us happy, don't we? And that begins to be a driving force in our life. But you think about Paul. He's in chains. He is imprisoned. And he's saying that even whenever people may be trying to do me harm, I'm going to still rejoice. He's not in it for himself there. He's able to set aside those things. And he's still able to find a way to rejoice. I think the New Testament really challenges the idea that my happiness is depending upon what I want or what makes me feel good. I think we have a much more robust view of joy and happiness and our joy and our happiness is not dependent upon the good circumstances or positive events in our life. Our joy and our happiness is not even primarily about ourselves. Paul said in Philippians 4, verse 4, to rejoice in the Lord, right? That my identity, my rejoicing, it needs to be because of my service to the Lord that's where I find my true joy and true happiness and any other search for true joy or happiness that does not involve God, it's going to be fleeting. It's going to be vanity, like the book of Ecclesiastes warns us about. Our joy and our happiness, it needs to be rooted in the Lord Himself, no matter what circumstance we might find ourselves in. We might find ourselves in the precarious position of Job, for instance. Job who lost family, lost friends, lost health. and Would we still be able to find some satisfaction in what God had at least once given us? Could we find it in ourselves to be thankful, for instance, for what God once gave us? Or is our joy based on Him continuing to bless us? Think about that. If you lost everything today, would you still be able to have a degree of joy or thankfulness for what God had given you Yesterday? Or is your joy only conditioned, and is your thankfulness only conditioned upon you receiving something from God good today? Have you ever thought about that? That challenges us, doesn't it? If we lost it all, would we still be able to rejoice? Would we still be able to give thanks? Would we still be wanting to pray to God? And if we never received another good thing from God from this moment on, would we still be able to find reasons to rejoice? I think it becomes very clear that as we think about these things that rejoicing is something that we are able to do because of what God has granted us for sure, especially in saving us from our sins. And we would have every reason to rejoice from here on out, even if I lost it all, knowing that I am God's child, knowing that He sent His Son to die for me, even in the face of adversity that I might be facing, knowing that He loves me, knowing that He cares for me enough to give His Son, that should change That should change me to where I'm always in a life, in a position to give rejoicing to Him. And what I think when we really consider joy and rejoicing, what it really becomes is that I have peace within myself and I am able to recognize the good things that have come from God and I want to share that with others. Notice in Philippians 2, one of the passages that mentions joy and rejoicing and things of that nature. In Philippians chapter 2, in verses 17 and 18, what I want you to notice here, says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Notice what Paul says here and as he is talking about, even if it's time for me to lay my life down as a sacrifice because of your service and your faith, I rejoice. How many of us could say that? <laughs> that I'm ready to give my life and I'm going to be joyful about it. I don't know if many of us would be able to say that. But he says, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. What I want you to see about joy here is that rejoicing always, it is about this outward sharing with other people. And it is intended to be this outward perspective on life where we are sharing with others and others are sharing their joy with me. And we reciprocate that joy. and We share it with one another and it's infectious and it grows. And it becomes something that helps us be more diligent in our service towards God. In the book of Psalms, in in the book in the book of Psalms, in the ninth Psalm, in Psalm nine, in Psalm nine, and in verse fourteen, David writes here. He says that I may tell of all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice. In your salvation. Notice what David is wanting to do because of this sense of salvation that he has from God and this sense of joy. He says, I want to tell all about you. I want to tell everyone about you. If we live the kind of life that Paul is trying to get us to see that we need to be rejoicing, then we are going to be telling people about the Lord. I think evangelism doesn't have to be that hard. We sometimes make it a lot harder and a lot scarier than it has to be. It begins with you having a life of joy. It begins with you wanting to tell people about what God has done for me. I want you to experience what the Lord has done for me. I want you to come to know that. When we begin to not be focused on ourselves, no matter what Modern pop psychology would tell us uh, that you need to live a life that makes you happy. Well, let's think about my life and my identity as a child of God, and that should be sufficient to give me joy, and then I want others to share that joy. Let's think about that. Let's think about bringing other people into that joy, and not just selfishly seeking what I want. Later on in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 97, in Psalm 97, and begin reading in verse 1, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before Him and burns up His adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare His righteousness, and all the peoples have seen His glory. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols worship him, all you gods. Zion heard this and was glad, and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. What I love about this psalm, it's really beginning with this invitation that in recognition of God, that God reigns, and so let us rejoice. And this, this magnificent, glorious picture of him reigning and sitting on a a throne where clouds and darkness surround Him, righteousness and justice, they're the foundation of His kingdom. Rejoice! Invite others to come to know God. Because if you are discouraged and you're complaining, you think that's Sending a signal of joy to others, especially the one that you're complaining to? And if they're not a Christian, do you think that's going to make them want to become a Christian? What what does your attitude communicate to people about God? Would others want to serve God because of your disposition and attitude of joy? Our joy is not about ourselves, it's about inviting other people to come to know God through us. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. As Paul tells us, first Thessalonians 5 and verse 17, that we need to pray without ceasing. Such a short and succinct verse, three words long. That's almost as easy whenever my Bible class teacher would give me an option to uh, pick my own memory verse, and I wanted to remember John 11:35. Jesus wept. I love that one. This one was nearly as good. Pray without ceasing." All right, got that one memorized. I'm done. without ceasing. Easy to memorize, but hard to live by, isn't it? And I think instead of this idea that there's always a prayer coming off of our lips, per se, I think it's the idea that we must always believe in the power of prayer. That no matter what circumstance we are in life, no matter what is happening to us, we need to always believe that we can turn to God. Prayer takes our perspective towards God. Upward and heavenly. I think prayer is at least a threefold response. It's a response toward God because of what God blesses us with. And it's a recognition of God has given this to me and so I'm going to thank Him for that. It's a response to God about what we have done or what we need. Maybe... I need some wisdom in how to deal with with some things that are going on in my life. I need to stop and I need to pray. Or maybe I've done something wrong that violates God's will and I've transgressed and I've sinned. I need to ask for forgiveness. Turn to God in prayer. Prayer is also a response to God about what we have received from other people, good or bad. I need to take time and pray in those moments in Daniel chapter 9 I hope you'll turn there with me in Daniel chapter 9 I love reading Daniel Nehemiah is another one we know that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den earlier in the book of Daniel because he would pray at the same time all the time and so they entrapped him they were able to get him in and I think if you go back and you line everything up the prayer of Daniel chapter 9 actually fits with what's going on in the events in Daniel chapter 6. I think you're getting a glimpse of how Daniel was praying here in those moments and let me tell you Daniel knew how to pray Notice in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 3. These are the words of Daniel. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. I mean, you can begin here and you're like, okay, this is good. (laughs) You can just see how he begins this prayer. It's not a very ritualistic kind of prayer. It's not the kind of prayer that you just have repeated over and over again. He looks to God's greatness and God's faithfulness and he says this. I'm praying to you, O God, who's faithful. And then you just see how he acknowledges his sin. The people of Israel's sin. He says, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly. Boy, he just keeps heaping it on, doesn't he? And rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Multiple ways he's saying the same thing, that we have turned away from you, God. And then he goes into not just the fact that they sinned, but he goes into how or why they sinned in verse 6. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. That we had your word. It wasn't your fault. It's not that we didn't know. It's that we chose not to obey. We chose to ignore. We chose to follow our own path. There's some more here that I'd like to read. Can't read all of it this morning, but he skipped down to verse 13. In verse 13 he says, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. He's saying, I've, I've gone back to Deuteronomy, I've read what you said was going to happen, and that's exactly what's happened. We're receiving the curses upon our, for our disobedience. He's saying, we haven't turned from our error, and so, God, you're still br- making us go through this. And then he says in verse 15, And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked, O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts. Let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications, and for your sake, O oh Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before You on account of any merits of our own, but on account of Your great compassion. He's saying, God, forgive us, not because of anything that we've done, but because of Your faithfulness, because of Your love for us. Forgive us. In verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. Forgive. O oh Lord, listen and take action for your own sake, O oh my God. Do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. You want to learn how to pray. Spend some time here reading this day in and day out. Read the prayers of Daniel and Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter one. It's a very, very similar kind of prayer. Read that every day for a week and try praying like that. And what I find to be so impressive in this text is how Daniel becomes so intently focused and aware of his standing and Israel's before heaven and before God. He's not giving, he's not treating God as Santa Claus where he's presenting him with this long wish list of everything that he wants. It's much deeper than that, isn't it? And he becomes keenly aware of how God is perceiving Israel and Daniel even in this moment. I think if we can begin to pray like Daniel, then we're going to see ourselves in a whole new light. We're going to see ourselves in the way that God sees us. And if we pray without ceasing, we're going to adopt An upward perspective for life. We'll recognize that we don't have all the right answers or the right solutions. And we must depend on God to help and to act. Pray without ceasing. And then finally, in everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. Now it is time for us to focus inwardly. We've looked outwardly, we've looked upward, and now we need to focus inward. In our rejoicing, we've had the opportunity to invite others to see what God has done for us and how God can bless them. In our prayers, we should focus back towards heaven and we can then begin to adopt God's perspective on our life. In giving of thanks, we begin to take inventory of the blessings we have been given, and we say, thank you. And I think if you just look at the Bible and what it says about thanksgiving, is that the most natural way to express thanks to God is through worshiping Him. In Second Samuel... In 2 Samuel chapter 22, this is a psalm of David that's not we're not reading it from the book of Psalms. In, psalm, in 2 Samuel chapter 22 and in verse 50 though, notice what David's words are. He says, Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations, and I will sing praises to your name. One of the ways that we can Offer thanksgiving is through singing. Singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs that we focus our praise and worship and adoration towards God. And we may think, well, it's easy to give thanks to God. My parents taught me good manners. I was taught to say yes ma'am or no ma'am or yes sir or no sir or address someone as Mr. So-and-so or Ms. So-and-so. I was raised with good manners. I was taught to say thank you or no thank you. We think it's so natural. We think it's so easy, don't we? And I would submit to you that being thankful genuinely being thankful is not as natural as we might like to think it is in the gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 17 in Luke chapter 17 Jesus was headed towards Jerusalem and he comes into this village where he encounters 10 lepers. And they are coming out to, to see Jesus. They're still a distance away. And they raise their voice. And they say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. In verse 14, it says, When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Ten were healed. Only one comes and says thanks. It's a pretty bad rate of return there, isn't it? (laughs) 90% don't say thanks only one came back to me that indicates that saying thank you it requires determination it requires thoughtfulness it requires awareness it requires intentionality it doesn't happen by accident that I have to be able to try to determine and to, to, see, and to see God's hand in things. Maybe it's normal everyday things. Have you ever gotten where you think, oh, I don't need to pray for this meal that God gives this to me every day, all the time. I don't need to return thanks for it. Really, why? Why do you have that attitude? Because it could be God. God doesn't have to give it to you. It could be gone the next day. We shouldn't have such a callous attitude or thoughtfulness about God and what He gives us. We need to have thanks for God all the time. We have to look within ourselves. We have to look at our life. We have to see how God has indeed blessed us. that's how God wants us to live and I'm convinced that if we live that way then we're going to have the kind of perspective and the kind of life that God wants us to have and this is the thing that we must do for ourselves to enrich and to better our life in our service to God learn to rejoice not for yourself for the sake of others, that they can come to know who God is. Pray so that you can depend on God for your life, for forgiveness when you need it. And give thanks. Seeing all the things that God has provided for you in your life, the many wonderful blessings that we have received, knowing that every good and perfect gift comes from Him. If you can have that kind of awareness of your life, if you can take that kind of inventory and count your many blessings, you will see that God loves you and that He cares for you. He cares for you so much that He gave His only begotten Son. He sent Jesus to this world to go to the cross to die for you that you could have the forgiveness of your sins. And if you have never named the name of Christ, if you have never put Him on in baptism, we would want you and encourage you to become a Christian, become a child of God today. Have your sins washed away in the waters of baptism, coming and believing that Jesus is the Savior, He died and that He arose on the third day for you your sins could be forgiven. Believing in that, confessing it, repenting of your sins, being baptized, having those sins washed away, you can become a child of God today. If you have made those steps and you've done those things, but you've veered off, you've wandered away, you've not been living faithfully, we want you to come back to the Lord. God loves you. He wants you to come back. We encourage you to do that this morning before it's eternally too late. If you're subject to the invitation, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?